Amen and amen, TVC. The resurrected king is not only the one who is resurrecting us, but he's also the one who has gathered us here together this morning. Amen? Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Eric Solomon, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. Specifically, I get the privilege, the honor, and every other synonym I can choose to describe that to be the campus pastor here at TVC. And if you're joining us here for the first time, I'm so grateful that you've joined us. Welcome into the space, I pray and I hope, and, and if no one else does it, I will do it, that you feel welcomed into this space because this is family. And we're so glad you're here at this family reunion. Amen? Amen? If you're joining us online, I'm also really glad you're joining us. We can't wait for the day that we can be together in the same place physically, but we are so glad that you can join us in this particular way this morning. Now, last Sunday, Melissa already mentioned it, but at the end of the service, we heard about a part of the work of God here locally, right? One of the ways we fulfill our mission as a church community to love God, grow together, reach the world, is through the way we serve and support the local ministry of Puente del Pueblo in West Chicago. And like we heard last week, by God's grace, we here at TVC out in Streamwood have been shaped by that particular ministry, by the way in which they serve. It has informed the way we seek to serve our neighbors here in Streamwood. At Puente, that neighbor love, like Matthew McNeil was talking about and Saul was talking about, takes the shape of things like education or, or language learning or, or even serving people in their most difficult situations. And what, what I want us to continue to ask as a community out here in Streamwood is to, to ask, what does it look like for us not just to, to learn from, but to serve like Puente in our local community? Uh, one of the examples I'll give you in the way that they're serving, recently their, their case management team was serving this particular family that was in the middle of a housing crisis. And at the last second, the, the family needed to move to a hotel for a few nights, but the move needed to happen almost immediately. And so what happened is they actually reached out to the Give Help team that our church has been building during this pandemic that many of you have communicated, hey, I've got a particular set of skills and I'm not referring to any movie quotes, a particular set of skills that I would like to serve in place of the church. And, and, and so they reached out to this Give Help team, and within an hour, within an hour, volunteers had already coordinated for this plan the very next day to serve this family. And loving this family like this enabled the Puente Case Management team to continue that love by working with this family on the next steps towards stabilizing their housing situation. I share that story to say that the love of Christ becomes more than an idea when we serve in ways like this. When we support ministries like this, yes, but when we serve as the body of Christ like this. The Christ who gave everything for us, who shapes us as a people who give everything we have, everything we are in service for the sake of the gospel. This is why we give. Not just because it fuels and funds ministry like this, but because we are created as a people of God who give, who worship by giving, and who demonstrate our dependence on God by giving. Right? So by our generosity, God is not only at work in our neighborhoods, but in our hearts, shaping us as self-giving people. We don't give just to get some kind of return on investment. I've mentioned that before. We give because of who God is and who he is shaping us to be. Amen, TVC? There are a couple ways to give. They're all up on the screen. But this morning, we have an opportunity to be shaped by this rhythm of giving as gospel people, as people who follow the one who gave everything for us. Now, before we step into the Word of God and to the Bible, I want us to take a moment to pause, to pray, to be shaped in this moment. Like Melissa was saying, we believe in the power of prayer, to be shaped in this moment in the presence of God, praying together. So would you pray with me? God of hope and mercy, faithful, loving, forgiving God, holy God. In the Bible, we have your words. We have promises that you have made to us, and we trust in these promises, like the one in Psalm 145, 18, that reminds us that you are near to all who call upon you, to all who call upon you in truth. Father, we wish that we would be able to say this morning that we consistently and constantly trust you. But we confess this morning together that there are times where hard situations come into our lives and instead of being filled with trust, we are filled with questions. So often we have no words in the face of unexplainable situations. We struggle to comprehend what is happening around us. To grasp things like the violence our country has experienced year after year, especially in 2020, but even again with this most recent shooting in Atlanta. You teach us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Would you help us to do that, not just today, but 
as you continue to bring these hard situations into our lives. We know that there are no mysteries for you. There are no facts that you do not know, no problems you cannot solve, no events you cannot explain, no injustice that goes unnoticed, no violence that will go unpunished, no hypocrisy through which you do not see, and no secrets that are unknown to you. Would you reinforce our faith this morning with the certainty that you are the one who has all the answers? This morning we come knowing that in your presence we are unmasked before you that you see us as we really are. You see our struggles with selfishness and our shallowness, our impatience, our pride. In short, you know that we are sinful and we would be hopeless if it were not true what Psalm 103 says about you, that you are compassionate and gracious, that you are slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, that you have not dealt with us according to our sins, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is your loving kindness to those who fear you. We thank you, Lord, this morning that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that it heals every wound. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you also for those who communicate the gospel all over the world. Today we remember your missionaries, Greg and Debbie Nichols, as they serve in the Czech Republic, a a country with one of the highest COVID rates right now, undergoing another lockdown. Would you give them patience as they and their neighbors endure this shelter-at-home order? But... Give them wisdom and resources to continue to expand this growing ministry that you have through them to refugees there. Use them to communicate your gospel through all the avenues you've given them in the middle of another shelter at home order. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this space would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of your son that we ask all these things, that we pray in this particular way, that we ask that you would change us. Amen. So it usually happens when the adults finally sit down after chasing my two littles around Grammy and Papa's house. We hear the scraping of this bench being pulled out and we wait as we imagine either, or to be honest, both of the girls trying to decide whether they're going to play the Hallelujah Chorus or the Gangster's Paradise on the piano in my in-law's front room. Almost always they choose neither of those things and they decide to freestyle and let the music take them where they would and take us all to a place of loud and random sounds filled with laughter and joy as they smash the keys. Sounds that are disconnected, that are disjointed, sounds that are in search of their place in this particular song. Often society can even feel like that. Right? Like, like we've all been just thrown together trying to occupy the same space and we're just trying to make all of our sounds fit together. But it sounds a lot more like madness than music most of the time. Even the church can feel like that sometimes. Like we look around at who God has brought into this family and we see a lot more of what splits us than what binds us together. Than who binds us together. One pastor writing about life with God described it like this. He said, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. This morning, we are finishing our sermon series in John, words of Jesus' longest recorded prayer, Amen, his heart turns to unity. And he asks the Father for all disciples. And when he says all disciples, he means not just the disciples that are standing before him, but the disciples that will be meeting hundreds of years later in churches all over the world. That will be meeting thousands of years later in a place called Streamwood, on campus and online. He prays for all of his disciples and he asks for their unity. That every single one of them would be tuned to each other precisely because they are tuned to him. Let me read that end of that prayer for ourselves this morning before I keep going. We're going to be in John 17, 20 through 26. And and so if you want to go there in your Bibles, but for those of you who might be new to the Bible, I've got two things for you this morning. First, I'm really glad that you're here. We would love to answer any questions. You can't ask any question that is too dumb. You can't ask any questions that we haven't heard before. And if we don't know the answer, we will help you find the answer because we want you to be introduced not just to the Bible, but to the Jesus who wrote that Bible. The second thing I'll say to you is, let me give you a crash course really quickly before we jump into the Bible and you're just like, John 17, what are these numbers? What's going on here? The Bible is a book filled with 66 books. 
And in those 66 books, they were physically written and copied by human beings. And yet that entire time, God worked by his spirit to bring together his revelation, his communication to us about who he is and what he is like. These 66 books are not merely human. They are a work of God through humans to reveal himself to humans, to us, because he loves us. And so this morning, we're in one of those 66 books called the Gospel of John. And no worries if you don't have a Bible, but that Gospel of John tells the story of Jesus' birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the story we're jumping into this morning, and we're going to put the text up on the screen. So if you will, everybody here, if you're able, please stand as we read God's Word. If you're worshiping with us from home, please stand as we read together from John 17, 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That the world, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is God's word. You may be seated. 100 pianos, tuned to each other precisely because they are tuned to one. Also that together they can produce not just the same music, but the same beautiful music in concert with each other. So let me translate that image for us this morning and put it in the context of our passage by giving you my main point right here at the beginning of the sermon. You ready? Here it is. Preach the gospel by growing in unity. Preach the gospel by growing in unity. This is how Jesus is praying in our text this morning. This is what we discover as we listen to what he prays as he approaches amen and as he approaches his cross. To get there, to see how Jesus prays that we might preach the gospel by growing in unity, there are two clarifications that we find in this prayer. The first clarification is in verses 20 through 23, where Jesus' prayer clarifies unity, this process of becoming one as the kind of unity that exemplifies gospel witness. The second clarification is in verses 24 through 26. There we see that unity is also the kind of unity that embodies gospel love. Unity that exemplifies gospel witness and unity that embodies gospel love. Let's step into the text then and get clear on what this kind of unity is because you might be surprised at the kind of unity you find that Jesus is praying for and how it isn't entirely aligned to the unity that we normally talk about. Unity that exemplifies gospel witness is our first section of the text. In other words, it is... Unity that illustrates gospel witness. Unity that is gospel witness. Unity that testifies to the truth and the goodness of God's love for humanity in Jesus. Unity is this, the gospel tract that every Christian should be handing out. The personal testimony that every Christian should be giving. The God-given strategy for evangelism, for telling people about Jesus and his love and his grace and his holiness and his salvation. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 20. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. Meaning, like I said, not for the disciples that are right in front of him. No, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus takes time here at the end of this prayer to expand the scope of his prayer request. Not just for those who believe right now, but for those who will believe. So I want you to notice the way Jesus expands his kingdom goals, right? They're not bound to a particular time and a particular place. No, Jesus in the prayer right before his betrayal, his arrest, his torture, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, he looks forward and he prays for those who will come to faith in him. Faith in the God who sent him. Faith in the message, the good news that he has been preaching this entire time. Faith that comes by hearing that gospel, that comes by the preaching of that gospel by his disciples and all the disciples that will come after him. Here is the beginning of the gospel witness theme that's going to weave in and out of our text this morning. This is the who of Jesus' prayer. 
But let me get you to what he is actually praying for them. Look at verse 21. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for all disciples and he's praying for their unity. He prays that they might be one. And then Jesus actually goes to define what he means by oneness in this text, in his prayer. It's a unity that finds its reference point in the Trinity itself. More specifically, the way Jesus says it, a unity that finds its reference point in the relationship between the Father and the Son. A relationship that is marked by both unity and distinction. You see, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. They are one in their love, in their purpose, in their mission. But that's not just because they're on the same team wearing the same jersey. They are one in an even deeper way. They are one in essence. At the core of God's being is to be one and to be three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be united and to be distinct. And so Jesus is here asking that believers would be one, would be united in a way that has its reference point, its analogy, its similarity to God's very being, to the Trinity. May they all be one. And that oneness is defined not just by its reference point to the Trinity, but did you catch it in the text by its location within the Trinity? May they also be in us. Jesus is praying that all believers might be located in and defined by their location in God himself. That we would be completely dependent upon God. That we would be living and moving and acting and reacting with an acknowledgement in and participation with God's actions in the world. As God's actions in the world. That we would be so identified with God, so identified with Jesus, so filled with the Spirit, that in some mysterious way, we could be said not only to have God living in us, but that we would be living in God. Now, before we go too far, let me keep us from falling off the deep end as we peer down to this deep theological truth, right? This does not mean, like some people say, that we become God. That we are so caught up in God that we become divine. This does not mean that we are caught up in the essence of God. What it means is that our relationship with God is like no other earthly relationship, right? It it has a depth of love and experience that can only find its analogy in the depth of love and experience between the Father and the Son. Let that sink in for a second. There is no other reference point Jesus could make to describe the relationship that we have with God, except for this deep and mysterious truth that God is both one and three. That's how deep the relationship between us and God is. But Jesus brings us to this theological depth in this prayer, not just to fill our heads, but for a purpose. To describe the kind of unity he is praying for. May they be one, right? One like God is one. One at a depth that has no analogy on earth, but only in heaven. One that is defined almost as otherworldly, right? Notice that Jesus prays here that we would be one, not that we would become one. Now, you guys might have heard me long enough preaching that you know I like words, right? And I get a little bit weird about little words like this. So I'm going to spare you some of the boredom in explaining all the grammar that that was going through my head that I got all geeked up about and just give you the payoff right here. Jesus is praying not that unity would become a reality, but that believers would live in reality. Jesus is praying not that unity would become a reality, but that believers would live in reality. The Incredibly insightful author, Joni Erickson Tata, who put it in more eloquent and theological words than I could, said it like this. She says, believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. Believers are never told to become one. We already are one and we are expected to act like it. Be one. Be who you are. United in Christ. United in God. Paul picks up Jesus' radical unity here in Ephesians 4, and he writes this about it. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. All right, Paul, I'm tracking. Be completely humble and gentle. Okay, that's a little hard, but let's keep going. Be patient, harder still. Bearing with one another in love, okay. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What in the world? 
Notice his word choice here, right? Believers are not called to make unity, to force unity, to generate some kind of unifying experience. Believers are called to, commanded to, make every effort, work hard at, do everything possible to keep, to guard, to protect the unity. But not just any unity, unity that is defined by the Spirit, marked by peace. Protect the Spirit unity with one specific tool, peace. How often have you seen people try to protect unity without peace? But what does Paul do then in the next few verses? He describes reality. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one Spirit Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You can feel him doing the preacher build-up, right? You already are one. You are the body of Christ, which is one. You are identified by, inhabited by the Spirit, which is the same Spirit of God, the one Spirit of God. You all have the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith. You have been baptized into, you have entered into the kingdom of God the same way, the kingdom that is ruled by the one and only God and Father over all. Be who you already are. This is what Jesus commands us in Ephesians through Paul's writing. And it's what Jesus prays in John 17. Let's go back to John 17. Look at how he defines that unity further in verses 22 through 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. One as we are one, Jesus says. Jesus in us, God in Jesus. There is this deep theological reality about the reference point of the Trinity And then again, he talks about unity being marked by glory. We've already seen that in multiple sermons in the past. This glory of crucifixion and resurrection, not glory as the world defines it, but as Jesus defines it in sacrifice and as exaltation by God the Father. But Jesus adds an important detail here to what he means by unity. Not only are we one, not only are we to be who we already are, but there's growth to this unity. Did you catch that? There's progress that they might be perfectly one, that they might be complete, some translations say. I don't know about you, TVC, but I've noticed that life is not perfect here, not yet anyways. Be who you already are and keep being until you perfectly are. There is this complete unity, this perfect unity that we are being brought to, but we are not there yet. This unity we have as Christians is a unity that moves, that develops, that grows. Remember, though, what we were saying earlier, we are not becoming one. This isn't a call to be more and more united. It is a call to demonstrate that unity more and more. You already have that unity. In other words, when we act in disunifying ways, we are denying reality by our actions. We are misaligned with reality. We are living in a fantasy world, if you will. When we act in unifying ways, When we act out the unity that we already have in Christ, we live out and proclaim reality. We are one. We need to act like it. But why? Is it just for unity's sake? No, Jesus is fixated on unity for a very specific reason. He's taking the time to pray that believers, all believers would be one for a reason. True Christian unity has a purpose. Look at the end of verses 21 through 23. You might have been wondering, Eric, did you skip those verses? I did not. Here we go. Jesus explains why he is praying for unity. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jump down to 23. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love have loved me. The purpose of the unity that Jesus is praying for, the purpose of true Christian unity is witness. In other words, unity exemplifies gospel witness. Unity that finds its reference point in the depths of the Trinity. Unity that is growing. Unity that is tuned to Jesus himself. This kind of unity communicates in such a way that Jesus tells us when the world sees that unity, the world will believe both that the Father and the Son sent Jesus and that the Father loves believers with the same kind of incredible love that he loves the Son. This is the testimony of our unity. As he prays, 
Jesus is focusing his gaze to see past their unity to the witness that is produced by that unity. In a world that is marked by division, separation, boundary lines and borders, the unity of God's people is a sermon, a testimony, a witness, evidence and proof that the Jesus we believe in is truly God and truly loves us. Earlier in the series, we looked at where Jesus commanded believers to to love one another because the kind of love that we would have for one another would prove that we we are truly disciples of Jesus. Well, in the same way, now he prays that we would be one, be united, because that kind of unity, that kind of otherworldly unity can only be explained by the truths of the gospel. This also means that this kind of unity has to be visible. It has to be observable, obvious, evident, People have to be able to see it. You can't just tell people, oh yeah, we're united, and they don't see what that actually looks like. In order for unity to be a witness that can be believed, it must be a reality that can be seen. Corey Temboom puts it like this. She says, be united with other Christians. A wall with loose bricks is not good. The bricks must be cemented together. True Christian unity. The witness of unity must be seen and it must be true. And I'll be clear here. The unity that Jesus is praying for, the unity we are talking about this morning, the unity that functions as a convincing gospel witness is not just organizational unity. Right? That stuff is important. There's a place for that. But I don't want us to get our terms mixed up here with what Jesus is praying. This isn't a condemnation of denominations or even of being part of different churches. If so, then we'd have to look at the New Testament itself and condemn all the churches in different cities and say, well, you're clearly not united. That's not what this is. What it does mean is that Christians, wherever they are, are to love one another, to see each other as family, and because they are family, to actually seek to learn from one another, no matter our differences. And in that learning, to be pursuing a true shared understanding of the Bible and the truth it reveals. If we are truly Christian brothers and sisters, there isn't really room to agree to disagree on certain core subjects. Not just for the sake of unity. Unity doesn't mean that we look for the lowest common denominator. We don't strip away the truths of Christianity for the sake of unity. Unity isn't the goal. Jesus is. We hold on to him and the gospel he proclaims. We hold on to the Jesus who is revealed in the Bible and actually lived and walked among his creation and history. We hold on to what the New Testament reveals about Jesus. We love like he loved by giving everything, all of who we are, to him and to others. Like Jesus, we are completely committed to the mission of the gospel. And in all of this, we depend on him so that we can be who he has told us we already are, one. Why? Why? Not just because this is reality, but because this is the way we witness to the good news of Jesus, by actually living it out. I'll say it like this. The unity, the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here, grows. Unity, true Christian unity, preaches. And at the end of the day, unity exemplifies gospel witness. When we attack that unity or cause that unity to break down, we actually sabotage our gospel witness. But when we celebrate and guard and grow in that unity, we cultivate the credibility of our gospel witness. Now again, I want to be clear here again, that when I say unity, I'm talking about the true Christian unity that Jesus is talking about here. right? Not our efforts at uniformity in the big C church that we have baptized as unity. I don't mean the can't we all just get along mentality that seeks to sweep issues under the rug. I don't mean redefining and delegitimizing hard conversations as not gospel conversations. We need to have hard conversations about how the gospel permeates every single area of our lives. From our relationships at home and at work to our relationships across ethnic and social lines, from our convictions in political spheres, both nationally and locally, to the way in which we participate in the life of our community right here. From our careers to our wallets to our calendars. We need to be able to talk with each other, to actually love each other, to tell each other what's going on in our own lives, what's hard, what's frustrating, what we are struggling with, what we're angry about, what we are hurt by, and do all of that in the unity that is brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
right? Not the uniformity that avoids hard conversations and vulnerability and then puts a smile on and pretends that everything is okay and united. TVC, unity preaches even when it is uniformity that is disguised as unity. And we have to be careful to preach the true and undiluted gospel through true and difficult and uncomfortable and hard conversation having, life-changing, sacrificial, loving unity. We have to come into these conversations assuming, presupposing, and believing that the unity we have in Christ is actually there. That is the way we have hard conversations. Preach the gospel by growing in unity. This is what Jesus prayed for. This is what he saw on the other side of his cross and resurrection as he prepared his disciples for his departure. Preach the gospel, and the way you do that is by growing in unity, by being one, because by the Spirit and in Christ you already are one. But that oneness, that unity, is not just a vehicle for gospel witness, it is also a visual for gospel love. After all, like Jesus prayed, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity does not just preach, it is also love with flesh and blood. It is love with hands and feet. It is love that serves and bears burdens and and walks alongside. Which is how we enter into our next section. Because unity embodies gospel love. Unity isn't just communicating a message, it is communicating a message of love of true gospel love that has no real earthly analogy. And so Jesus describes it as the love that the Father has for the Son. And he fills out what he means when he prays. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You see, even as Jesus prays for present unity, Jesus looks to future glory. I want them to be with me. I want them to be where I am. I want them to see my glory. The gospel is and has always been about relationship. It's not merely some statement of faith to sign or a lifestyle to follow. It's not merely about what you know or how you live. It has always been at its core about being loved by and truly being loved by and loving God. The gospel is about relationship. Belief, theology, ethics, living life as God intended to be, all of that flows out of relationships. The relationship that you have with God. You see, this is where we so often get into trouble, TVC, when we, when we flip this. And we, and we actually, or at the very least functionally, live like saying the right big words, checking off the right to-dos, avoiding all the right you-better-nots, are what lead us into and allow us to participate in relationship with God. I'll say that again. This is where we get into trouble, TVC. When we functionally or actually live like saying the right things, doing the right things, avoiding the wrong things, are what actually lead us into relationship with God. What allow us to participate in relationship with God. TVC, when was the last time you thought about, and I mean really thought about, like reflected on, sat with the reality that Jesus loves you? I want you to hear me when I say this. Believe me when I tell you. Look at me. Jesus actually and truly loves you. Jesus loves you both because of who you are and despite who you are. You see, Jesus, what's, what's crazy about this is that he loves you exactly how he made you, with all of those weird quirks and idiosyncrasies you have. He loves you like he made you. But he also loves you despite your brokenness, despite your sin, despite your rebellion. And here is the reality of that truth even as I say that. You are not broken enough You are not repulsive enough. You aren't smelly enough, gross enough. You aren't bad enough, sinful enough for God's love to pass you by. You are not bad enough for Jesus' love to miss you. It's precisely why he loves you so much. Jesus loves you. 
I uh, had a hard time writing this because I almost was just like, kept writing that phrase over and over again. I was like, at some point, they're going to get tired of me saying three words for the entire sermon. But I want you to remember that. I want that to be imprinted on your soul, on your mind, on your relationship with God. That he actually and truly loves you. When life gets hard and you are tempted to turn away from him, when, when life gets full and you're tempted to drop your head and drop your shoulder and grind out your to-do list, when you are tempted by sin, when you act and react in your job and your relationships and your neighborhood friendships, in all of those areas and so many more, the reality that Jesus loves you changes everything about that. It changes everything about how you interact with sin and how you fight sin. It changes everything about how you interact with your neighbors. It changes everything about your life. I want that truth imprinted on my soul as much as I want it imprinted on yours. Jesus loves you. The clearest demonstration that we believe that, though, TVC, as I say that, is that this, we have internalized and been marked by this love, the greatest demonstration that we believe that is our unity. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Our commitment to Jesus and to one another in love demonstrates that we actually have internalized the fact that Jesus loves us. Because if Jesus loves us, that means that I can love you and not be worried about all the things that you might find out about me because you already know the worst thing about me. TVC you see people talk about pastors not working out their issues on the stage? You guys already know my worst issue. I am bad enough. I am wicked enough. I am evil enough that Jesus Christ himself, that the Son of God, had to come and die for me, for my soul. So anything else you find out about me, TVC? Anything else you, you hear? Anything else that when we interact and I make a mistake? You shouldn't be surprised. Because you already know the worst thing about me. And I already know the worst thing about you. So you can come into my office, we can go have coffee, we can have lunch, and nothing you say is going to surprise me. Because of the gospel. Because of the love of Jesus. That's why unity is the greatest demonstration of our love. That's why unity matters so much. Because it proves that that has actually taken shape and done something. Our commitment to Jesus and to one another in love. And I want you to trace the logic here. We'll be in verses 25 through 26, and, and we're coming to an end here. But Jesus prays. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You see, there are three kinds of knowledge here that Jesus talks about. The world that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't know God, the Jesus who knows God completely, and the disciples who know God because of Jesus. Now, we've already talked about the world over and over again in this series, so I'm not going to do that again. You can go back to some of those other sermons. But Jesus is here not only acknowledging the ignorance of the world, but contrasting it with himself. Right? They don't know you at all. I know you completely. Which is why it's so important how he describes the knowledge of the disciples, how he describes our knowledge. It is knowledge that has been derived, knowledge that has been revealed, knowledge that has been given through Jesus, in Jesus, by Jesus. They know that you have sent me. It is knowledge that is based on the incarnation of Jesus, based on his coming to earth as a human being and making God known, right? He says it in verse 26, I have made you known to them. But the prayer continues, I will continue to make you known. You see, Jesus promises that his ministry of making God known will continue, and this shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Because we've read about the Holy Spirit coming after Jesus leaves in order to guide believers into all truth. This is how God chooses to reveal himself to people through the church, through the people of Jesus, and the spirit that inhabits them. His revealing ministry has a purpose, though. And I keep doing this in this sermon because that's the surprise of this text. In order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them, I have made you known and will continue to make you known so that, in order that, for the purpose of love. And otherworldly love, true gospel love, the, the love that the Father has for the Son. This incredible love would not only be shown to them, but would actually be in them. 
catching little words in the text like in is really big in this moment. That Jesus himself would actually be in them. You see, Jesus has not built some kind of exclusive club filled with a bunch of intellectual elites talking about some special kind of knowledge. It's not what the church is. What Jesus has built in the church, and you guys, I say it all the time, and I say it with a Spanish word just to catch your ears, a familia of believers, a community of love, a place where people meet God and his love in physical form, where people meet the kind of otherworldly love that is between the Father and the Son. God has chosen to make that visible, and he's chosen to do that through the church. And what makes the church special, what makes the church the church is the presence of Jesus himself. And, and I'll say here at the end of the prayer, this is Jesus' mic drop moment. It wouldn't be as dramatic because I have a head mic, but this is where Jesus gets to the end of the prayer and says, this is what I've been working towards. After all is said and done, God himself will dwell in his people forever. And if you've been tracking in the story of the Bible, right, we're in this Bible reading plan over two years. If you've been tracking in the story of the Bible, this is what God's people have been waiting for, dying for, the fulfillment of a promise that has been long and coming. You see, from the very beginning, and we're going to go on a little biblical theology tour here, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve were sent away from the garden, they were removed from the presence of God, the plan has always been to reestablish relationship, to reestablish the presence of God among his people. He has been building this to this ever since the relationship was broken. I'll give you a glimpse into what he's done by taking through a few texts quickly. And I'm going to go even quicker than I normally talk, so I apologize for that. But you don't have to look up the text if you want. I would say write down the reference and look them up later. All right? That's my warning as we're about to race through. You guys ready? You're going to ride with me? Here we go. Exodus 24, 15 through 16, right after God gives his people his law, his how-to for living in community with him, after he has rescued them from slavery in Egypt, this is what he says. This is what the text says, the story says. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. In other words, Moses went up and God came down. Something special was happening. Relationship was being reestablished. A few chapters later, Exodus 29, 45 through 46, God reveals his plans. He says this, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I will dwell. They will know. Remember what Jesus said. He has made God known. They will know and I will dwell. Fast forward Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? He gives them instructions to build this tent of meeting, this place where, where God would meet with his people, this tabernacle, where relationship would continue to be established. And after it was built, he filled the place. Something special is happening. God is reestablishing relationship. Next book, Deuteronomy. God is described as the Lord your God who is among you. They are encouraged with this reminder of the presence of God among them. For the Lord your God moves about. God dwelling is not just to like have some kind of presence and some fire burning all the time. God, the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. This is the promise fulfilled. Or is it? I don't have time to, I can't speak fast enough to go through all of the prophets and all of the history and all the times in which God's people have been praying for God's presence, lamenting the lack of God's presence when they have sinned, rejoicing in God's presence when they have repented, warned to stay in relationship in order to enjoy God's presence. We don't have time for all that, but I'll skip right to the opening of the New Testament. In John 1.14, where the text says, the word became flesh and made his what? His dwelling among us. Moses didn't have to come up for this one. God came down. He didn't give up on his people. He didn't neglect or reject his promise centuries later. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, was never the complete answer. The temple that was built and rebuilt was never the complete answer. We needed something more. He was building to something more, to something special, reestablishing relationship. He was building to the day when he himself would come. That I myself may be in them. Not just that he would come and make his dwelling among us, but that he would make his dwelling in us. That God himself would live within his people, within each of us individually, and within, each of us, within us as a whole. 
united in him, in relationship with him. This has always been the goal. This has always been the gospel, the good news of salvation, that God himself would come and make everything right by changing us, by making us into this shining beacon of light and witness by, to his goodness, to his love. But the church is not just testifying to God's love. Look at verse 25 again. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. The church Those who know Jesus was sent by God testify about him, the one who knows God fully and makes him known, to the world which does not know him. You see, what stands between the world and the disciples, between the world who doesn't know and the disciples who do, is Jesus. Knowing him and believing believing that he is who he says he is. The church isn't just testifying to God's love. The church is testifying to specific that, that God's love is shown in Jesus himself. It's not just a message of love in the abstract and the general. It's love in the specific. Jesus himself. And we testify to the world by our unity. Our unity as the body of Christ embodies the gospel love we are testifying to. All of what it means to love, which includes testifying to the world's sin-produced ignorance of God, which includes communicating the righteous love of God that he won't leave us broken, but he does call us to humbly acknowledge our brokenness and that he is the only one who can fix us. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is why Jesus prays for unity. Not because unity is some good in and of itself, but because unity embodies gospel love. Real and true unity. Committed to Jesus and to each other like Jesus was committed to us. The Jesus who came, emptied himself. The Jesus who despite the difficulty, despite the frustration because of his love, took each step day by day, month by month, year by year, towards the cross. The moment Jesus came and grew up into, from an infant to someone who could understand, he knew that the cross was the goal. True unity marked by gospel love. This is how Jesus ends his prayer with the disciples, with a focus on unity that exemplifies gospel witness and a unity that embodies gospel love. Because as Jesus' final hours unfold, what we know is that he is going to enable that witness with the cross that makes that witness good news in the first place. As his final hours unfold, he will demonstrate and enable that love with the cross that will make that love good news anyways. In just a few moments, Jesus will take his disciples to a garden, a garden where he prays for himself, a garden where he's going to be betrayed. In just a few moments, Jesus is going to step further towards love, towards his cross. A love that was planned from the beginning of time. A love that entered time and space for this moment. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died This is the gospel. This is the good news that we believe. This is the good news that brings us back into relationship with God. This is the good news that brings us back into relationship with each other. We preach this good news, this gospel. More specifically, we preach this gospel by growing in unity. Our unity, our true unity, is a reality that we live into. A reality marked by love that emanates in witness. It's not unity for unity's sake. Otherwise, we would look for all of these different ways in which we could cut down and dilute truth in order for us to agree and be, quote-unquote, united. But that is not what God calls us to. He calls us to maintain, to keep, to guard, to protect, to participate in the unity defined by the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity that is defined by the Spirit and maintained by peace. True peace, not conflict avoidance. Grow in this unity, TVC. Be who you already are. Look for ways to love others. Anticipate ways to love each other. To better understand each other. Seek to understand. 
Actually have conversations with each other instead of lining up on whatever sides of whatever issues you might be. Walk side by side, pray together. You'd be surprised what prayer can do to your relationship with someone that you don't agree with. Don't avoid conflict. Enter into it. But like I said, do it presupposing, believing, assuming in the true unity of God's people, no matter what the disagreement is. May we be one as the Father and the Son are one. May we understand that we are loved like the Father loved the Son, that Jesus really and truly loves you. May we love like we have been loved. May we live like the body of Christ. May our lives as unity, as his people, exemplify gospel witness and embody gospel love. Would you pray with me, TVC? Father, that is our prayer this morning, that you might, by your Spirit and in your Son, continue to empower us to be one, that you would unite us in your love, that you would unite us in the love of your gospel. Lord, we know that you will build your church, that you're not going to leave us here to figure this out all by ourselves. We know that your kingdom is here and now, not just some day in the future, but we long for the day when that kingdom will be fully here, when unity will be complete, when unity will be perfect. But even so, Lord, we ask that you would change us by your gospel. We do draw more people who don't know you to a saving knowledge and experience of you because of the unity, because of the love that we express for one another here in this community at TVC. Would you continue to unite us that we might proclaim your gospel here in Streamwood? Would you bring out the problems, the disagreements, the hurts, the frustration, the pain that we have here, and would you heal it with your gospel? Would you bring out the love and the joy and the the feeling of a family that we have here and would you make it shine by your gospel? Would you continue to shape us as gospel people who reflect the truth of your gospel, that we are more broken than we could ever imagine, that we are more loved than we could ever hope, and that Jesus is the only one that can fix that brokenness and show that love to and through us. May we be one as you are one and as Christ lives in us. Amen.